0: Welcome to Tales of Terror. <laughs> Hi, I'm Philip Lumell. This show is actually titled No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the Turn Limits Movement, and this is the episode for the week of February 17th, 2020. But recently, in the New Hampshire State House, there's been an attempt to spook legislators into abandoning their previous support for an Article 5 Amendment-writing convention. One after another... A parade of opponents spun fearful tales of conspiracy, chaos, and anarchy that would reign, apparently, if states were to send delegates to hash out a proposal for a constitutional amendment. Any constitutional amendment. Fortunately, our own Ken Quinn was on the scene with the facts. Before we get into that, let's find out how U.S. Tournament's Executive Director Nick Tombalides fared in Washington, D.C. last week as he met with many of our nation's state governors. Hey, Nick.
1: Hello. Happy President's Day.
0: Oh, thank you. Now, I understand that last week you spent in Washington, D.C., but didn't visit the president, but you visited with a lot of our nation's governors. How'd that go? Yes. What were
1: you there for? I was there. I was there. I hate flying to Washington, D.C. It's my least favorite city in America because it just Mm. reminds me of all the wealth of the political class. You know, they don't make any product or service in Washington, D.C., and yet like four of the five richest counties in America are surrounding it. So do the math. But I attended the National Governors Association in D.C., which is a nonpartisan group. Um, Every single governor is a member. The governors themselves actually travel out For this, they do sessions, they give speeches, they host receptions. And the cool thing about it is that you actually get a lot of one on one time with these governors to talk to them about whatever you want. So naturally, I wanted to take their temperature on term limits and see where most of these people stood. And how did it go? What kind of vibe did you get? Um, Believe it or not, a majority of Republican governors I spoke with and a majority of the Democratic governors favored term limits on Congress. And that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, they seem governors in general. They seem to be more reasonable people because a lot of them came from outside politics. And thirty-six of the fifty governors have term limits, so you don't usually see someone squat in the position of governor for a very long time and and grow out of touch. But it was a very warm reaction. Like I said, majority of Democratic governors I spoke with favored term limits on Congress. I'll give you an example: Ned Lamont, the governor of Connecticut, not someone you would traditionally think of as a term limit supporter. He told me he wished the Connecticut legislature had a term limit of six years, which I thought was cool. So, you know, that might be an opportunity to work with him, an opportunity to work with Connecticut and getting term limits on Congress. I know we've gotten a bill filed there before. You know, he's a guy with a business background, and he's probably damn annoyed with all the sluggishness, all the complacency of the legislature.
0: Right. I'm not too surprised about the attitude of governors when you think about the fact that they deal with legislatures and they're not actually part of it. So their interests are not exactly aligned with um, all the other legislators, which is the problem with talking to legislators about tournaments, of course. And also governors, like you say, they have a more varied background. Also, they have a real job. And being a governor is an executive position where you actually have to run a major organization. Whereas being a legislator is really not a difficult job. Your job is really to show up and to press a button.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of these governors actually get paid less than members of Congress. Members of Congress get $174,000 a year. I think most governors get substantially less than that. So not only are they doing more work, but they're getting less pay. And unlike congressmen, congresswomen... It's typically not the highest paying job they've ever had because most of them come from some kind of executive background. So they've been successful at something prior to politics. They tend to be more reasonable. And in terms of what we're trying to do with Article 5, obviously what we need is to get a state legislature to call for term limits on Congress. That would mean the state house and the state senate signing off on it with the majority vote, or in the case of Nebraska, just the state Senate, since they have a unicameral. But that doesn't mean the governor can't play a significant role in the process. Every governor has a bully pulpit. You know, they give a state of the state address every year where they lay out their priorities. And who's to say term limits can't be one of those priorities. So I was um, pleasantly surprised by the positive reaction we got there.
0: Excellent. In what way could we recruit governors or I guess I want to say, what do you ask of them if they turn out to be in favor of term limits?
1: What would we like them to do to help out our effort to term limit Congress? I tend to ask them to um, to go get their boots shined and then personally help me kick politicians out of office. Um, <laughs> Very good. No, I, I think it's a, like a spokesperson role, a leadership role, someone who can be on TV and the papers communicating on behalf of the term limits movement. A great example I'll give you is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. He's not somebody I needed to ask about this because I already know where he stands. He is very vocal in his support for term limits. He's helping us get school board term limits through the Florida legislature. He's helping get other states on board to term limit Congress. So we need more Ron DeSantis's out there. We need to build the bench of governors who will help us get this done. All right. And of course, it would always be
0: helpful in any state where we're trying to get a tournaments convention bill through the legislature to have the governor on our side, even though generally the governor does not have to sign off on a resolution for an Article 5 convention.
1: Yeah, not only do they not have to sign off, but if they try to veto it, it would not stop the resolution from going forward. So, That's right. in a technical sense, they don't have a role in the process. But we all know that when a governor makes a statement, that carries a lot of clout in a state of and course. beyond.
2: Hi, this is Scott Tillman, the National Field Director with U.S. Term Limits. We ask candidates for the state legislature to sign a pledge to help us get congressional term limits. The pledge reads, I pledge that as a member of the state legislature, I will co-sponsor, vote for, and defend the resolution applying for an Article 5 convention for the sole purpose of enacting term limits on Congress. There are many legislative elections coming in 2020. In the last two weeks, 49 new candidates for state legislature have signed the pledge We also ask federal candidates to pledge support. In the last two weeks, 12 new congressional candidates signed the pledge. The pledge reads, I will co-sponsor and support the U.S. Term Limits Amendment of three House terms and two Senate terms and no longer limit. Candidates are getting real traction with the U.S. Term Limits Pledge and with the U.S. Term Limits issue. If you have access to candidates, please ask them to sign our pledge. Pledges are available at termlimits.com.
0: In the New Hampshire State House in January, a hearing was held before the House State Federal Relations and Veteran Affairs Committee about rescinding that state's application for an amendment-writing convention under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. Now, that application wasn't about term limits, but U.S. Term Limits Northern Regional Director Ken Quinn was there to defend the Article 5 convention process against a parade of fearmongers. His testimony was quite frustrated, but it was also masterful. He's with us today on No Uncertain Terms. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. Hey,
3: Phil. How are you doing?
0: So before we get started, let me set the table for the discussion. As listeners know, all 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution thus far have been proposed by the U.S. Congress, right? But the founders also included the power for states by convention to propose amendments to the Constitution that the U.S. Congress wouldn't touch. They realized that it was possible that Congress itself might be the problem and that the convention route was provided as yet another constitutional check and balance. Now, in New Hampshire, because of this call for a Article 5 convention, critics put forth this resolution and there were hearings held on the other day about why the calls for a convention should be rescinded. And the arguments they made was that the convention process is dangerous and untested because, one, it's never been done, and two, because, you know, we don't know the rules by which a convention would operate. But can your testimony seem to contradict that?
3: It's not true, and I think that's why you could tell I was a little frustrated in my testimony.
0: I did hear that, yes. So what, specifically, when they say it's never been done, what do you say to that?
3: I'd like to address that because... Typically, in my testimony, I like to go over the history of these conventions, and we have a long, rich history of conventions of states, and it's, it's fascinating history. You know, prior to our independence, uh, the colonies would uh, meet in convention to deal with issues. And then after our independence, and even after the Constitution was ratified, we still had conventions of states. It's it's the means of uh, addressing critical issues. And that foundation to our system of government is still active and vibrant today. And so I like to do a little history lesson when I testify because... Not only have we had conventions, but we have one every single year. And I don't know if you want to get into that, but I like to share how we have a convention every single year. All 50 states participate in it, and it operates exactly like an Article Five convention. And that was one of the things that caught my attention. So... Let's talk about this convention because I
0: think most legislators don't know about it. Most of our listeners probably don't know about it. So there is a convention of the states every year. What's it called?
3: It was originally called the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. Today, it's known as the Uniform Law Commission. Okay, and If if you ever heard of the Uniform Commercial Code, um, if you're familiar with that, it came from this convention.
0: And this is held every year.
3: Yeah, it's held every year. It started in 1892. And what was happening back, um, you know, after the Constitution was ratified and, you know, the states had different laws. And so it be, it started to get really messy for the people of our country because you go from one state to another. They had totally different laws. And uh, what, what happened was the federal government started to kind of encroach upon the states and their authority. And so... They kind of got tired of this, and I believe the first meeting was in Saratoga, New York. I think five states sent delegates, and and the whole purpose of starting this conference or convention amongst the states was to prevent the federal government from intervening in the issues that are delegated to the states. And so it was basically enforcing the 10th Amendment is what it was doing. And they met every single year since then. Um, The only year they did not meet was in 1945. And so we have a vibrant history of of how a convention of states works.
0: So it'll be meeting in 2020. Where?
3: In uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And I attended the the one in 2016 in Vermont. And it was fascinating. Um, You know, the delegates are all seated uh, together with the flag of their state. The whole entire process from the call to the final vote of the what they call model act is uh, virtually identical to an article five convention
0: okay let me see this in a little detail um so we have all the all 50 states are participating in this that's fantastic participation i guess they wouldn't have to if they didn't choose to now each state sends delegates and you said they're seated together so that'd be very much like any other convention of states they i guess they have an agenda that they agree on and they make proposals. Now, what happens to these proposals? Because a convention of states itself cannot alter or abolish any law.
3: Yeah, great question. So once they vote, it's one state, one vote at the conference. And typically, they will typically pass maybe five or six of these, what they call model acts or uniform acts. And what happens after they pass it The commissioners or the delegates, they then bring that model act back to their state and bring it to the state legislature to be adopted as a bill to try to get the legislature to pass it. And if it gets passed, they call it enacted. Uh, Once it's enacted, it only applies to that state. So it doesn't apply to other states, only to that state. So that mirrors the ratification process of an amendment.
0: Yeah, very similar. Okay, that's very interesting. And you mentioned also in your testimony in New Hampshire, and I found this fascinating, that there was also a convention of states that actually related to Article 5 um, in Arizona, and I think you said 2017. What was that about?
3: Yeah, that was an official convention of states called by the Arizona legislature. They met in Phoenix. And the purpose of that convention was to draft the rules for the um, Article Five Convention for the Balanced Budget Amendment. They're up to 28 states now. So if they got to a convention, the purpose of this convention was to have the rules already established for that specific convention.
0: How many states participated in the Arizona Convention of States?
3: 21, 25 states, I believe. I don't have the exact Okay,
0: wow, that's good participation. All right, and that followed, I guess, the, the exact same structure as, I guess, any other convention of states, including an Amendment 5 convention, which is that some state calls it, states provide delegates, they adopt some rules, and then they come up with proposals that they send back for ratification or approval by the appropriate legislatures. So clearly, (laughs) the amendment process is something that's not experimental. It's something that we've used all the time. Let's look at the rules for a second, because you said that the Convention of States in Arizona in 2017 was being held to adopt rules for a potential actual Article 5 amendment writing convention. That directly addresses some of the fears that people have about Article 5 conventions. But I noticed to have a convention, (laughs) that Convention of States in Arizona must add rules. And also the Uniform Law Commission that's held every year has rules. Where do these rules come from?
3: Yeah, and that's what's the most troubling and uh, disturbing thing about this opposition is that we use rules like this every single year. It's foundational to how these conventions operate. Um, you know, this is nothing new. In fact, the rules that the Uniform Law Commission operates under are very similar to the rules that other conventions of states have used way back when. And so what's fascinating, especially New Hampshire, New Hampshire of all states should be actually leading this charge because, you know, each state has its own constitution. New Hampshire in their history, they have had 17 conventions. Two of those conventions were called to draft or adopt a new constitution. 15 were called to propose amendments to their state constitution. And their last one was 1984. So out of all the states, New Hampshire knows how to operate a convention. And what's really fascinating was, in their constitution, there's no rules for such a convention. So Obviously, um, if it, <laughs> it, 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 they don't have the rules and their okay. constitution, but they've been able to do it 17 times. Right.
0: Well, I think it's pretty clear that there are traditions that basically you go into a convention and you basically know roughly what the rules are going to be, and it's a matter of codifying them. Is one of, I guess one of the first things you do when you establish a convention of any kind. I know that I've been to all kinds of conventions. And one of the first things you do is you adopt rules. And, it's, and you know, for most groups, it's simply a matter of saying, okay, we're going to operate according to um, common Mason's
3: rules. Mason's rules, Mason's rules. Or, you know, or whatever, yeah. yeah.
0: But the point is that there's a history of rules for conventions. And it's not really a controversial thing. Once you adopt them, the convention is operated according to those rules. And because there's been so many conventions over history, you go into these conventions knowing basically what the rules are going to be. You nail it down first thing, and you move on. It's a funny thing to create fear and loathing about, um, because what I'm hearing from you right now is that not only is the convention process not new or experimental, but it's used all the time. It has been for the whole history of the United States. And secondly, that we have traditional rules for these conventions, plus there's actually rules that have been hammered out or being hammered out by the states right now specifically For an Article Five Convention. So when I hear all this, um, and I'm sure people listening to this podcast are thinking this is pretty weedy stuff, and they're probably not getting scared. What's probably they're getting bored. (laughs)
3: Yes.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, this is this is like really boring stuff. So where did all the fear come from? From these people speaking in front of this committee in New Hampshire? What are they afraid of?
3: Well, it's you've got groups out there that want to maintain the status quo, protect, you know, protect the establishment and they use this fear and they try to make it sound like this has never happened before, you know. Now, technically there's never been an Article 5 convention. That's correct. We've never had an Article 5 convention called. And so they use that, you know, I hate to say it, but they use the ignorance of people to make them very fearful of the process when they would just take the time to do a little research and realize oh my goodness we're using this every single year.
0: This is an important discussion because even though it's not directly term limits related, we are looking to convince states to call for an amendment-writing convention under Article 5 of the US Constitution limited to the subject of congressional term limits. Now, Term limits are so popular with the people that when this issue comes to a head, when we start getting enough states and getting close to critical mass, the political establishment is going to have to find some way to thwart us. And they're not going to want to admit that they're against term limits. So I think we're going to hear a lot more of this talk about, oh, it's never been done before. Oh, what will the rules be? Oh, this is a dangerous experiment, when it is not. Just hold it right there, Callahan. No tricks.
3: Your organization's through, Briggs.
0: There's a lot more where they came from, believe me. Uphold the law. You just killed three police officers, Harry. And the only reason I'm not going to kill you is because I'm going to prosecute you with your own system. It'll be my word against yours. And who's going to believe you?
1: Know his limitations. Did you meet any other notables in Washington while you were there? I did, actually. Um, I happened to meet the Honorable Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi. I met Nancy Pelosi, and um, it was like Luke Skywalker meeting Darth Vader. <laughs> All right. Thankfully, she did not say she was my mother because that would have been terrifying. But um, so I I got some advance word she was gonna be there and uh, the gears in my head started turning because I really knew I had to do something. You know, people who know me know I'm a little bit of a provocateur, if you weren't already aware of that. You know, I was the kid who would let the pet snake loose in the classroom and stand in the corner laughing my ass off. Uh, so combining my lack of maturity with a Nancy Pelosi appearance, and this is what you get, my original plan was to give her a copy of the term limits pledge but not just any term limits pledge a laminated version so that when i handed it to her she could not rip it in half <laughs> right like she did with trump's speech so i had the pledge laminated but i didn't they were moving her so fast through security there was no time so i wasn't able to give it to her but my plan b was to sneak my term limits sign into a picture with her and me and that we were able to do yeah i saw it it's great which was really cool so that picture is online That picture is on Term Limits Facebook, TermLimits.com, Term Limits Twitter. It's gotten like tens of thousands of shares from people. And what you didn't see was behind the guy taking the photo were like 100 people watching this. All these like political elitists in Washington, no less. And they see me whip out the Term Limits sign and they start cracking up. As this is happening And Nancy Pelosi looks at me And asks me why they're laughing yeah. <laughs> And I'm like I, I have no idea <laughs> So she she had no idea The joke was on her And um, it was amazing That's fun. And meanwhile, I was hanging out with Nancy Pelosi and my wife was at an event with Rand Paul in Florida, who, of course, is a very big pro term limits guy. So I'm thinking, you know, I need to reevaluate my life choices here because something has gone horribly wrong. (laughs) Why am I hanging (laughs) out with Nancy Pelosi?
0: Well, that was very helpful. Thank you very much. We also had some uh, concrete news over the past week down in Florida, for instance. You mentioned how we're working on trying to get um, eight year term limits on all of the school boards. And that has made its way through a couple more committees and now is headed towards the floor vote in the House on Wednesday.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, this will be the first time the Florida House has ever voted as a body on putting school board term limits on the ballot. It's never made it this far before. If you recall back in 2018, It got on the ballot through the Constitutional Revision Commission, and then four activists in black robes on the state Supreme Court struck it down. They disenfranchised 13 million people. So this is our second bite at the apple. It has gotten through all of its committees on the House side, which is phenomenal. It has gotten through all but one committee on the Senate side. It's awaiting one more hearing, and then it will go to the Senate floor, too. And if it gets a three-fifths vote in each chamber, it will be on the 2020 ballot, so every Floridian will get to decide it,
0: which is really cool. Well, I'm not counting chickens yet. We got a little work to do, but I mean, we really have momentum on this and it really looks like fingers crossed that we're going to cross the finish line. We do.
1: All the hard work, all the elbow grease has been paying off. We have been schlepping Mm -hmm. our way around the state for the last three years, just talking to people about this, building coalitions, getting legislators signed up behind it, writing op-eds, writing letters to the editor. So many people have worked so hard. It's been a true grassroots campaign. And now we're just starting to see the uh, fruits of that effort. But I will tell you, like, I would say, We're on our opponent's 20-yard line right now, and it's like third and six. We've got good field position, but this is by no means a lock. We can't take it for granted. If you live in Florida, go online, go to termlimits.com, and go to our action page and send a message to these legislators because they need to hear from you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of No Uncertain Terms. Term limits are an American tradition that is worth celebrating. On February 27th, how will you publicly show your support for Turn Limits Day? For ideas, go to turnlimitscom forward slash For swag, go to turnlimitscom forward slash shop. Feel free to contact us with your ideas through our website as well. Whatever you do, be sure to document it on social media. Thanks. We'll be back next week. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review. The No Uncertain Terms podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play.
3: U.S.T.
1: You just totally rewired my brain on the concept of term limits, to be frank with you. I didn't like term limits, but term limits for all, uh, that totally changes the dynamic.